Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, February 25th. The 2022 Alberta budget was released yesterday, outlining Alberta's path to economic recovery. We got reaction to the budget and how it will affect Alberta taxpayers from Kevin Lacey, Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Reaction to the budget was not as positive from Alberta's two biggest municipalities. We talk with Mayor Jyoti Gondek about why she was disappointed by what was or technically wasn't in the budget for Calgarians. We also spoke with the mayor about supports available in our city for the local Ukrainian community. The U.S. and its G7 allies have agreed to impose economic sanctions on Russia in response to their invasion and resulting war in Ukraine. We talked with Washington Bureau Chief for Global News Jackson Prosko about President Joe Biden's tough talk regarding Russian President Vladimir Putin. And this week is Freedom to Read Week in Canada. It's an annual initiative that encourages Canadians to think about the importance of intellectual freedom by reading. Librarian Amanda Arbuthnot joined us to talk about the importance of books that force us to have discussions about difficult but necessary topics. Well, the 2022 Alberta budget released yesterday outlining Alberta's path to economic recovery with reaction to the budget and how it will affect Alberta taxpayers. We're joined this morning by Kevin Lacey, Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Good morning, Kevin. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me. Okay, so oil obviously is the the big highlight here. I've seen some sort of mixed reviews from unions not so pleased, the mayor not so pleased, the chamber is very happy. What's your reaction to Alberta's 2022 budget? Well, this is largely a positive budget for taxpayers. And the reason is really twofold. The first is that for the first, for the only the second time in the last 15 years, the government presented a balanced budget. Now, that's significant and the reason why taxpayers should care about that is because the government is starting to pay down the debt. When the government pays down our debt, we're paying less in interest, and that means that we have more money for health care, education, roads, or lower taxes. So that's a significant change in the way we've been doing budgets in the last 15 years. If you look at from 2004 to 2018, government spending grew by about 9% a year. That's massive. Uh, and this begins to slow the drip of those big increases. Uh, spending will go about 3.6% or about 1.2% every year. So you see the massive change that we're going uh, on the spending side of the equation. I think the one thing, though, that we saw at yesterday's budget that gave us a little pause is Alberta in 2019 changed the way we do our income taxes. And they used to be that as inflation rose, we changed our index. We indexed our tax brackets to that inflation. Uh, the government promised when they brought in a balanced budget that they would bring that back, and they didn't mm-hmm. in this budget. And as a result, that's going to cost you between somewhere between forty-four and one hundred and forty-four dollars a year, depending on your income. Um, but that's significant because that compounds each and every year. Um, so every year they don't do it. If this money adds on, and it's money off your paycheck at a time when. Um, we're seeing big inflationary changes, and I know you're going to be talking about the Ukraine situation. That's now driving this again, and so that's one of the things we wanted to see addressed in the budget that was not. Now, you, you touched on uh, health and education, money going towards that. We'll get to that in a little bit, but do, do you think that this budget then you know, sets sort of a clear path for Alberta's economic recovery? I do. So prior to this budget, the government was really flying blind. They did not have a fiscal plan 
for how they were going to go about the next few years. And that was a big concern of ours uh, with, through the budget consultations. Where we said, how can the government plan, you know, even in this COVID period when we don't have any idea of, you know, what the fiscal uh, you know, trajectory is? And so the government changed that. and They brought in a plan over the next few years to show how they plan to balance the budget, how they plan to pay down debt, and to begin setting some of the markers in some of these other important areas like health and education of how they're going to spend the money to have actual success uh, in the new economy. Uh, and obviously we can thank oil prices really high yeah. once again, but unfortunately that kind of puts us again sort of on that oil money roller coaster, doesn't it, in this ah, province? Boy, it is. You know, going into the budget, you know, trying to decide, trying to look at what was going to come yesterday, a lot of conversations about oil prices I had just to try to get our own minds wrapped around what this is going to mean for average people. And uh, the government, though, deserves credit because not yes they were success yes they were lucky they the the oil price revenues are very high and that's really adding um, to their ability to balance the budget but we can't ignore the expense side and this is you know it is a, a two-pronged approach uh, in order to get us to the balanced budget that was introduced yesterday um, because without slowing down that spending even with these massive uh, growth and revenue from oil, we wouldn't have that balanced budget. It, it goes to just how far deep in the spending hole we were uh, heading into yesterday's budget. And the government, you know, they deserve credit for trying to get us uh, to trying to get us out of it. I mean, federally, provincially, there was a lot of spending that's been done over the past couple of years, yeah. right? So you, you you feel that's really key is just sort of reining back on that, but putting necessary money where it needs to go, like like health and education, for example? Well, yeah, and I think spend, talking about the spending is important, too, because one of the things the government did in this budget, which is different from previous governments or even other governments within Canada, is that rather than kind of uh, give big packages of money uh, to, say, health and education, what they did was they targeted it. And so, yes, there's some spending for things they call this thing Alberta Works, which tries to... Um, retrain and get the economy so that they're, they're matching jobs that the jobs that are available with the skills within the economy. But rather than just giving universities money, they actually said, look, we need more veterinarians. The universities must create this number of veterinary spots. It was 50 in the budget. And they kind of went through all of the things that the Alberta economy needs uh, in order to grow. And I give them credit for that because it's that's uh, it's so much easier just to quell. You mentioned unions and mayors. It's so much easier just to throw money at them and you know eliminate the political problem that they create. Um, but instead, what they did was set forth a very detailed plan for how the spending should go. So it's not just massive sums of money out of the provincial government into the pockets of other people, hoping that we're going to achieve these goals. They actually did the work of what is going to work and what isn't. And I, I think they get some credit for that, I think. Do you think perhaps, uh, you know, a, a provincial leadership review on the horizon also has anything to do with how a government looks at a budget like this one? I think it's hard not to put politics in everything the government does. <laughs> um, so, of course, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think, I, look, I think it was political suicide for the government to come in with this budget at a time when oil prices are what they're at and not have a balanced budget, and for sure. But I also think Albertans have told the government what they want. 
um, and they've been very clear. They need the government to be fiscally responsible like they have through the pandemic. Right. Um, so I give Albertans credit because when the government reacts in this way, uh, and when I, when I see it, at least it looks like that they're responding to average Albertans' needs, that is because we've stood up and told them what we want. Um, and that's the only thing politicians really listen to, right? The, 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 the signal of the electorate in the next election. Um, so, yeah, no, absolutely there's politics in this. Uh, but it shouldn't take away from what I think is setting forth a reasonable plan uh, going forward. And I think like groups like ours, look, would love to see even more spending reductions given the massive spending increase that has gone on prior to this budget. Um, but they've really struck a balance here of, of investing in some areas that are, are desperately needed, like hospital growth in our capacity so that if there's more health, if mm-hmm. there's uh, more COVID um, surge, that we can deal with that. I think that's actually a good use of government spending. Uh, but on the same on the same time, doing things to control the spending growth so that we're not in this mess, and you and I are not talking about this when oil decreases, um, that we're in these massive deficits that we can't handle. So a thumbs up from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. It is for this year, that's right. Excellent. Thanks so much, Kevin. Appreciate your time this morning. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. Kevin Lacey, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Alberta Director. Slots to cover this morning as we check in with Mayor Jyoti Gondek. Good morning to you, Mayor. Good morning, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Happy Friday to you. Lots to cover this morning, boy. Let's begin, though, uh, your reaction to yesterday's budget. I saw a series of tweets that you put out and and clearly not pleased with the money coming to our municipality. Well, yeah, we listened in. Or the lack thereof. Exactly. We listened in to um, what what they had to say yesterday afternoon. We had another very quick quick session with the Minister of Seniors and Housing. And then we stitched together all of the information and how it has implications to Calgary. Uh, We did a full presser yesterday afternoon. And, you know, there are some highlights. I'm really happy that our post-secondaries are getting some money. UFC is getting um, some funding for its veterinary program. Uh, The John Ware Building, which houses the Culinary Institute at State, is getting some funding. And MRU is getting much-needed funding for its facilities. But at the end of the day, they're taking close to $800 million dollars of property taxes from Calgary, and we're not getting a lot in return. Here's my favorite. We invested a quarter of a billion dollars in downtown recovery to spur uh, our economic recovery as well. And their idea of matched funding is to give us 2% at 5 million. So it was incredibly disappointing. Yeah, for sure. And and I know Tony was just talking about this in the news as well, that the the feds would have uh, matched transit loss finances as well, but the province offered up none of that. Yeah, we were advised by the federal government that emergency operating funds due to the pandemic for transit uh, were available. However, we had to have provincial partnerships and agreement to do so, and there's nothing. So we're, once again, leaving money on the table. This is deja vu back to the childcare negotiations that went sideways for so long. I did get a text in saying, uh, you know, the Calgary's getting three times more than Edmonton. And I know Edmonton's mayor was very unhappy with the budget as well. But municipalities as a whole looks like they were left out. Yeah, I, I feel as though there has been a major disconnect between municipalities and this particular provincial government. We've been asked to take on a lot of responsibility around the pandemic. We have been asked to take on um, cuts to our property taxation system, especially a lot of the rural municipalities. If you remember a couple of years ago, 
Wainwright was losing 50% of its revenue stream because there was forgiveness on property taxes. Um, it's, there's no comprehension of how municipalities need to function. And once again, it's brought us all together, which is good, but we were completely left out of this budget. I want to switch gears a little bit uh, and talk about what's happening in Eastern Europe and, and how Calgarians uh, really can kind of come together and perhaps help support our Ukrainian community, big Ukrainian community in this province and right across the country. Are there resources available within the city for, you know, any kind of help that way? I would have to say that the local Ukrainian community has been doing an incredible job of offering uh, places for people to come together and just, you know, talk to each other and figure out what they can do to be supportive. Um, I know that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church over in Bridgeland, uh, there was an indication that the lights were on last night and it was open to anyone who wanted to come and pray and just have some company as we're trying to get through this tough time. Um, there was another Ukrainian community organization that held a bit of a, a rally at Peace Bridge last night. So the community is trying to do its best to support each other. And, you know, as Calgarians, it's important for us to understand how difficult this is for mm-hmm. folks that have ties back to Ukraine and we can just be there for them. Absolutely. And speaking of resources, another topic, you were very vocal after the fatal shooting by a police officer over the past weekend about resources for newcomers. What exactly would you like to see in Calgary on that front that may perhaps have helped and and maybe will in the future? Yeah, I think we need to start understanding better how mental health crisis and trauma plays out in our city and how incredibly damaging it can be for folks. If you think about the fact that, um, you know, Mr. Toole was a child soldier and there are folks in the Sudanese community who have said the type of trauma that young people experience before they came here is something that is unimaginable to those of us who live in a place like Calgary. It it means that our newcomer-serving organizations have been taking on a, a very heavy responsibility of helping with mental health supports, and we need to make sure that filters throughout our system. And my point about this incredibly tragic incident is that we need to go back and look at how we practice de-escalation. And this is, you know, it's a horrible situation. The officers at the scene were called for a very specific call. When they got there, I don't think it was what they expected. And the resources they should have been able to tap into simply weren't there. So is that just an ongoing thing? I mean, we talked to the police chief this week and, you know, he was obviously uh, clearly it's it's very tough for his force as well uh, for what happened. And 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 there's been a lot of discussion through the, the Calgary Police Service about getting some help on the front lines when they are mental health calls. But in this case, like you say, they didn't even know what they were walking into. Yeah, you know what? It's systemic. And I think what we need to recognize is that an officer, when they are called, into a situation has very, very limited information. And once they get to that scene, if there's more information that unfolds in front of them, they need to have the ability to tap into a resource. And unfortunately, that's lacking for our service. And so it's an incredibly traumatic time for the members that attend the scene. It's incredibly tragic for families that are impacted, and it's just very tough on everyone all around. It is a systemic issue. And this goes back to the point. If the system and the processes are flawed and the training is not appropriate and the resources aren't there, this will continue to play out. That's why so many of us are asking for modernization and true organizational change. It is not a blame game. We're trying to strengthen the system. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Calgary Mayor Jyoti Gondek.
The United States and its G7 allies have agreed to impose economic sanctions on Russia in response to their invasion of Ukraine. With details on this and all the big stories out of the U.S., we're joined this morning by Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. Hi, Jackson. Happy Friday. Hi, Sue. Happy Friday. Uh, Well, let's get into the topic at hand. It is obviously the one the world is talking about. And yesterday, President Biden spoke outlining what the U.S. is going to do to sanction Russia. But to me, it was striking what he won't do, and that was not getting American soldiers actually involved in battle. I can't imagine there's much appetite for that among the American people, is there? No, there's not, and there doesn't seem to be an appetite among that, uh, or for that among anyone within NATO, to be honest. I think uh, everyone is worried about getting drawn deeply into direct conflict with Russia, a nuclear-armed nation. Uh, and uh, Vladimir Putin has already leveled that threat that anyone that interferes uh, in uh, the conflict in Ukraine could potentially face nuclear weapons strikes. So all of that seems to be uh, leading us down a path where the West and NATO allies simply sanction Russia and do what they can from the outside and are and equip Ukrainian forces on the ground to the best of their ability without getting directly involved. Is that why, Jackson, do you think is you, the Ukraine, or Ukraine is not a member of NATO and, and so the, the NATO countries don't want to actually go in and fight? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it comes down to, because, uh, of course, NATO's Article 5 is that an attack on one is an attack on all, and uh, uh, any Russian aggression against NATO members directly would require the intervention of all NATO members. Ukraine is not a member of NATO, and so uh, there's a bit of wariness about drawing in a larger global conflict here uh, if, if NATO were to get involved. So does it seem that fear then is a little bit behind the sanctions? Yes, they they all leveled sanctions against Russia, but you know these are things that will happen down the road. Well, why not kick Russia out of the SWIFT banking system, for example, or cut off Russian oil altogether? Yeah, I mean, I think these are questions that the West is going to have to grapple with. Uh, on the question of SWIFT banking system, uh, which is, of course, how uh, money is essentially moved around the world, um, the U.S. says that the sanctions it imposed yesterday are actually swifter, they are stricter than a ban on uh, using SWIFT. But there are still calls for that to take place. I think there's a bit of concern among some European nations that uh, if they do that, it will be impossible to recover payments on debts that are owed to them from within Russia. Uh, but at the end of the day, they may have no choice but to proceed down that path and that's certainly what the ukrainians are calling for and oil russian oil uh, is very much a factor in the united states isn't it it is. It's a factor in Canada, too. I mean, the maritime provinces actually import oil from Russia. Uh, there's lots of concern here about uh, how you deal with the fact that Russia is a major energy producing nation. And there's sort of two schools of thought on this. One, of course, is that, you know, buying oil from Russia certainly helps Russia and its economy. But if you cut off Russia and do not import oil supplies from there, that is going to raise the prices of oil and gas around the world. Russia is still exporting to plenty of nations that are not going to crack down on it. And higher oil prices actually benefit Russia so um, and, and effectively hurt the West. So it's, it's sort of a tricky uh, uh, balancing act here. Where does China factor in, Jackson? Does, does the president talk with the leaders of China and make sure that they're not planning military action of their own in this? Yeah, I mean, I think fears of China using this as a moment to invade Taiwan, for example, are perhaps a bit overblown. We haven't seen any indication that China is doing anything different with regard to Taiwan than it has been doing all along. Uh, but interestingly enough, there's a story in the New York Times today that the U.S. for the past three months has been presenting China with evidence of Russia's military buildup against Ukraine, hoping that China could perhaps talk Russia down. And instead, what happens, it seems, according to the, the Times story, is that China actually shared that American 
intelligence back with Russia as opposed to intervening. Mm. Uh, now China is saying that there's, you know, now's the time for dialogue and negotiation between Ukraine and Russia, uh, which is sort of both sides in uh, an invasion that it was strictly done at Russia's behest here. A terrible situation. We continue to watch it through the day with you. We'll change gears a little bit and talk about COVID. Latest numbers in the United States and, and where we're sitting at now. Yeah, certainly trending in a positive direction as they are everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're sort of seeing the, the last of the restrictions come off uh, here in Washington, D.C. For example, uh, our local mask mandate ends uh, as of Tuesday. Um, the vaccine uh, passport system has been ended, and that's pretty much uh, one of the last jurisdictions to have those levels of controls. Uh, still, though, seeing around 2,000 Americans die every single day from this, completely preventable deaths, uh, of course, from people who uh, chose not to get vaccinated. And that really is the story of this pandemic, that uh, despite widespread uh, early access to vaccines. There are so many holdouts and there continue to be so many deaths. And CDC expected to loosen the guidelines federally then for where Americans need to wear masks and indoors looks like that'll be gone too soon, right? Yeah, that's where it seems like things are headed. I think travel remains the big sort of question here. You know, planes, trains, and buses where people are sort of in close quarters. Um, those mask mandates may hang around a bit longer, uh, but uh, it certainly seems like uh, there is a, a move toward living with COVID, I guess would be the best way to describe it. What's the latest situation with Donald Trump? We can't uh, get away from talking about him. There's always seems to be the, a story that involves Donald Trump uh, coming up and, and, and on the daily almost. Yeah, you know, those investigations are still underway, although uh, we saw some surprise resignations in Manhattan this week from the DA's office, and that's the investigation into uh, Trump's taxes. And uh, um, it seems as though uh, the DA's office has kind of indicated that they may not proceed with the prosecution there, and that led to some staff changes there. But uh, certainly a number of investigations still underway, and, and Trump is really still continuing to make his presence known in American politics on almost every issue right up, right up to the Russian invasion uh, with uh, Ukraine. And race continues to be an issue we're certainly seeing uh, with the um, jury finding three men guilty in the hate crimes trial of Ahmaud Arbery, and then as well with the George Floyd and the, the police officers involved in that, too. Yeah, and of course, those are uh, sort of additional layers of federal hate crimes charges that were brought in and sort of really signify, I think, the the seriousness uh, of which the federal government took uh, these crimes, the fact that there were additional levels uh, of, of federal charges there on top of, of the state-level convictions. So uh, those cases continue to uh, proceed as well. Thank you, Jackson, for your time. Love it. Any big plans for the weekend? You know what? I think catching up on some rest after what has been about a crazy few weeks here. That it has. Oh, I should ask you quickly before we let you go about the trucker convoy. It's uh, pretty much over for now anyway in Canada. But I understand there are some uh, some organizations, truck organizations that are headed towards the capital in the U.S., right? Yeah, uh, the convoy that is coming seems to be mostly vehicles, and it's in Texas right now. Really no indication as to how big this is going to be. Uh, there was an attempt at a convoy earlier this week to shut down traffic in and around Washington, and it resulted in exactly one truck and one pickup truck following it. Maybe something was lost with the exchange rate between Canada and the U.S., I don't know, but it's just it's not really catching on down here as a movement, it seems. Thank you very much. Thanks for the update. Have a great weekend. Take care. Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. This week is Freedom to Read Week in Canada, an annual initiative that encourages Canadians to think about the importance of intellectual freedom by reading. Calgary Public Library marking the event and to explain what they're offering up, we're joined this morning by librarian Amanda Arbuthnot. Good morning, Amanda. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Okay, explain a little bit about Freedom to Read Week. Why is it important to talk about? 
So Freedom to Read Week is really just an opportunity to think about intellectual freedom, as you said. And we take this time to celebrate the work that the library does in creating spaces and collections that meet the needs of our diverse community. So in normal times, we would have lots of wonderful programming. We would have people into our spaces to highlight our collection. And of course, with COVID, we have limited opportunities to do that. But we're really just trying to spread the message of how our collection is designed to meet all of the needs of Calgarians and how everyone is welcome in our branches and our virtual spaces. And this year, you're profiling a specific book. Tell us a little bit about this and the author. That's right. So the book that we are profiling is called Seven Generations, A Plains Cree Sega. And how we um, call attention to this book is we present a book each year to the mayor of Calgary. So this is Mayor Gondak's first year receiving a title from us. And we chose Seven Generations um, for a few reasons. First of all, it's a really celebrated book. Um, It was included on many notable lists. Uh, David Robertson, the author, has written a few celebrated graphic novels around this similar topic. And it wasn't fully banned, but the story behind it is that it was listed on Edmonton Public School Board's Books to Weed Out. And so just to give your listeners a bit of background, libraries do remove books from collections all the time due to currency, um, interest, a lot of different factors just to keep our collection fresh and relevant. But Seven Generations wouldn't be one that you would expect to be called from a school library. As I say, it's celebrated. It was listed on a number of websites as a book that would be important to be a part of um, a school collection. And so it was just unusual to see it being removed. And especially when we think about how our province is making a commitment to truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. It's so essential that we have books by Indigenous authors in our collection. And what we see in a lot of book bannings and book challenges is that they tend to be along the theme of marginalized and racialized populations, um, LGBTQ plus populations. So we're really aware of those kind of challenges and we want to make sure that those items remain accessible to anyone who wants to read them. Absolutely. So, so important. I mean, you know, it's not that long ago that we were burning books and and you know even just hearing that a book might be removed from a school because of you know subject matter like abuse in residential schools i think that's something that we need to be teaching and learning more about so these things never be repeated but is there ever a book do you think amanda that that wouldn't be allowed inside a calgary public library you know, it's it's a hard question to answer, and I think right now the topic of intellectual freedom is, is really on top of everyone's mind. You have people like, you know, Joe Rogan, who become the center of this controversy, and even though it feels like we're not related to that, we really are, because we have to consider that even though ideas and books might be present that we don't agree with or that we might find questionable, it's important to give access to all materials so that people can have conversations about them. So. I would never say that there's anything we would have a strict no policy to. Anything that we feel uncomfortable with or that our patrons feel uncomfortable with, it's the start of a conversation. Mm. It's never an outright no. It's let's look into this, put it into context, find out what we can learn. Love it. And uh, again, we'll mention this year's profile book, Seven Generations, A Plains Cree Saga by David A. Robertson. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Amanda. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Bye. It is Freedom to Read Week in Canada. Visit the Calgary Library online or in person, calgarylibrary.ca. That was Amanda Arbuthnot, who's a librarian. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 5:30 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.